we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. And our first point is called Jesus. And this point is really, we're going to be doing an overview of Matthew chapter 8 to 10. Just an entire uh, flyover of Matthew 8 to 10. And then our second point, we're calling it the leper centurion and mother. And we'll be diving into Matthew 18 and really looking at the identities of these three characters. And then finally, in our last point, we're calling it the healer. And we're looking at the healing themselves and looking at the specifics of the healings themselves. So with that said, if you're able to, would you rise as we read God's word together? Matthew chapter 8, we're going to be looking at a lot here, but really compelling stuff, uh, verses 1 to 17. Uh, I'll read this for us. I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you could respond with thanks be to God, I'll pray for you, and then I'll seat you after the reading of God's word. This is the reading of God's word. When he came down from the mountain, that's Jesus. Remember, he just gave the sermon on the mount. He was up on the mountain. So when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west, recline and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, so, and to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for, as, for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is the word of the Lord. Let me go ahead and pray for you and then I'll seat you. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Would you help us to follow you with all of our hearts, souls, minds, and strength? Would you paint for us a vivid and clear picture of what discipleship looks like and what it means and what it costs to follow you, Lord? May we devote, God, every ounce of our being to you. We thank you, Lord. May this be worship and honor and glory to you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. <clears throat> all right, I want to start with a question, okay? And the question is this. Are you ready to follow Jesus? Are you ready? You know, when I was thinking of this question, the voice that came to my head, I don't know if you remember in the 90s and the early 2000s, and even in the 80s, there was a preview guy's voice. You know what I'm saying? Like, the trailers now, they just show you clips of the movies, but if you're old enough, you remember over the clips of the movies, there was a guy's voice, a deep guy's voice, and he would say, are you ready, you know, for the adventure of your life? That's the voice that came to my head. Are you ready? Are you ready to follow Jesus? Because I'll tell you this, if you decide to follow Jesus... Your life will be filled with so much excitement, so much thrill, so much adventure. It would be a journey for you. And of course, at the same time, there will be a cost. 
And I think what Jesus is doing in this sermon, in, oh, sorry, in uh, Matthew chapter 8 to 10, is he's asking us this question, are you ready to follow me? And the way he does this is by describing to you a vivid picture of what a disciple looks like. And by describing to us a vivid picture of what disciples look like, he's asking you and me, are you ready? In fact, the way you live your life now, look at it now. And look at the pictures that are described to us in Matthew 8 to 10 and ask yourself this question, are you even following me to begin with? The decisions that we make, the way we live our lives, are we actually following Jesus? So let me do a quick flyby uh, for you over Matthew chapter 8 to 10, okay? And if you have your Bibles, your iPhones, pull it out, uh, follow with me because I think it'll be really advantageous for you to follow with me, okay? In, in Matthew chapter 8 to 10, there's a very clear structure, okay? Jesus always does three miracles and then he calls his disciples to follow him. Three miracles, he calls to follow. Three miracles, he calls to follow. Three miracles, and then he calls people to follow him. And it's interesting because in the first three miracles, he heals a leper, a centurion servant, and then Simon's mother-in-law. And then right after that, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18, he then talks about the cost of following him, and then he invites people to follow him. And in fact, these two people come up and they're like, hey, hey, I want to follow you, Jesus. And he's like, hey, if you're going to follow me, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And if you follow me, you will be homeless just like me. And then another guy's like, hey, like, I'm, let, me, let me go bury my father first. And he's like, let the dead bury the dead. In other words, he's saying there's a cost to following me. And then again, after that passage, there's three more acts of healing. There's more three acts of power. Jesus calms the storm. And, and look, it gets even heightened, right? The, the kinds of miracles he does get crazier. He calms a storm. He heals a demon-possessed man, and then he forgives the paralytic sins, and he heals the paralyzed man. And then right after that, again, another call to discipleship. And he calls Matthew to follow him, the tax collector. And in this section, what he describes is not suffering of a disciple, but the joy of discipleship. He considers it to like a feast and a banquet and to wine and to do these kinds of things. And he says, if you follow me, you will have abundant joy as well. So yes, there is a cost, there is suffering, but there's also joy. And then again, right after that, there are three final acts of power. He raises a dead person back to life. He cures a woman of her blood discharge for 12 years. And then finally, he heals a blind and a mute. And then again, right after that, after those three acts of power, after those three miracles, again, he sends out his disciples. He calls his disciples and he sends them out. And throughout chapter 9, the, the way chapter 9 ends, he says, if you remember your Bibles, right, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And then in chapter 10, he sends out his disciples to actually go do ministry, to actually go and to heal people and to, and to share the gospel. And so let me summarize for you now. What Jesus is doing here is, look, there's power and authority, and then he calls his disciples. Power and authority, and then he calls his disciples. Power and authority, and then he calls his disciples. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, the first thing you have to do is pair my authority with that discipleship. Authority of Jesus and discipleship go hand in hand. You cannot divorce those two things together. In fact, in the Great Commission, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18, how does he start that time? Right, he calls, he tells them, go therefore and make disciples. But right before that, what does he say? He says this in Matthew 28, uh, 28 um, 18. He says, and Jesus came and said to them, all what? All authority, all power and authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he says, go therefore and make disciples. 
Authority and discipleship go hand in hand. Now, why? Why? Why does Jesus pair authority and discipleship together? And I'll give you two reasons. And we'll spend a little bit more time on the first reason, but then the second reason is, is sort of a, an outflow of the first, okay? The, the first reason is this. We obey the one with all authority. Jesus is establishing his authority because he says, naturally as human beings, we obey the person with all authority. Do we not? At your jobs, your manager, you obey that manager because they have all authority in that workplace. At home, if you have a parent or whatever, you obey that parent because they have all authority, right? If you are the boss or the manager and you have all authority, people obey you. Why? Because you have all authority. And Jesus is saying the same thing. You obey the person with all authority. He's saying, I have all authority. You don't have all authority in heaven on earth. You don't control the cosmos. You don't control the bodies. You don't control land and sea. You don't control anything. I have all authority and thus you obey me. And this is really at the centerpiece of Matthew chapter 8 verses 1 to 17 as well. There's three healing stories, okay? And the first one is of the leper, the second one of the centurion, and the third one of Simon's mother-in-law. And if you look there, right at the middle is the centurion servant story. And it's the longest, right? There's like four verses, and then there's like 10 verses, and then maybe like another three verses. But the 10 verses is really the centerpiece, I think, of Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. And so let's go there now. Jesus goes into Capernaum, the centurion who has a lot of authority, right? He has hundreds of soldiers underneath him, comes to Jesus, and he pleads. He's like, please heal my servant. And Jesus is like, okay, I'll, I'll go over to your house, and I'll heal your servant. And he says, no, 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 don't come to my house. And the reason why the centurion stops him from coming to his house is because imagine this. Imagine one day um, you, you see me, okay, Eric No, walking into a pot store. And, you, and then I walk out of a pot store. But I don't, I don't buy any pot. But you see me walking into a pot store and walking out of a pot store. You'd be like, hey, what are you doing going into a pot store? And I'm like, it's not illegal for me to go into a pot store, but it'd be weird for you to see me go into a pot store. In the same way, it would have been socially awkward for Jesus to go into a Gentile's house because Gentiles and Jews were not to associate with each other. And so the Roman centurion knew this and he submitted himself under Jesus and said, look, look, I know how awkward it's going to be for you. I, I know that you're not allowed to come into my house, so just don't come in. But I know the authority that you have. You have so much authority over the, the, the waters and the seas and over the human body that if you just speak the word, my servant will be healed. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And to this statement, Jesus marvels. you you got to understand, Jesus made the cosmos, the sun, the moon, the stars, the universes, the galaxies. And yet he marvels at this man's faith. You know, I went to, um, I went to the, uh, uh, oh my goodness, what is it called? Uh, in L.A., right by the Hollywood sign, there's a place, the Griffith Observatory, where you can see all the galaxies. And I took my sons there, and my daughter and my wife, and we were walking around and looking at all the galaxies and all the stars. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. You realize Jesus just made that with his words. He's, he doesn't marvel at anything. And he marvels at this man's faith. Something so simple, he marvels at. Why? Imagine with me for a moment, there's a person that comes to our church and they've never been to church. They've never read their Bibles, but they come up and they preach one of the greatest sermons you've ever heard in your life. And they know so much about Jesus. They know so much about the Bible. You'd be like, what is going on? It's the same thing. The centurion should have been the the last person to know anything about Jesus. And yet he understands what no one else understands in all of Israel, that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And this man, the centurion, this Gentile knows his authority. 
Look, a disciple is someone that is just, it's very simple, it's not complicated, but it is compelling. A, a disciple is someone who simply says this, Jesus, you have all authority on heaven and on earth. And I will do whatever you say. When you say go, I will go. When you say stand, I will stand. When you say jump, I will jump. When you say sit, I will sit. Whatever you say, I will do. You and I learned this at a very young age. We played a game called Simon Says. Simon says, you go like this, right? Simon says this, you, and you do it. Simon says this, and you do it, right? Simon says this, and you do it. Follow the instructions. This is what Jesus is saying. This is why Jesus' authority matters so much. And here's the thing. Jesus is just as clear as Simon says. And yet I think the reason why, I think the reason why we don't obey Jesus at times is because I think to ourselves, we mix it up in our heads and we say, well, Jesus, you're not as clear, you're not as clear as Simon says. Like Simon says it's super clear, but you're not clear. Jesus. Like, what about my job? What about what city to live in? What about who should I marry? Who should I do? You're not as clear, Jesus, to the specifics of my life. And yet I would argue this, that Jesus is abundantly clear. It's just we make it complicated. You know, let me give you an example. And, and I don't mean to guilt trip you over this example, but, you know, I, I throw myself in here too, but... We did a whole series on the Sabbath. We did six weeks on the Sabbath. And I think if I did an okay job at this, I think I, may, I did an okay job at, at presenting to you what the Sabbath is and why the Sabbath is a rhythm that God has built into our lives and why the Sabbath is also a command that we should obey today. From Scripture, I think I did an okay job presenting this because it is a part of the Ten Commandments and we obey all the Nine Commandments except for the one on Sabbath. And I think today we should obey the Sabbath. And I ended that series by describing this. I said, look, we should set the Sabbath, like save the date for the Sabbath, prioritize that Sabbath. Why? Because it is holy and set apart. That day should be unique, holy set apart. And what you do is you save the date, right? You make the Sabbath holy, and then you prioritize everything else around it. You know how to do this. You set something as a priority, and then you shape everything else around it. And yet so many of us have not done this. I mean, but this is what God has been asking us. And this is something God has been so clear about. Think about the story of Cain and Abel. It's the second story in all the, the Bible. Cain and Abel is literally about God asking us to prioritize him first. Right? Cain, what does Cain do? He has this great harvest and then he gives God the leftovers. And this is us, right? Don't we do this? We're like, okay, like if I have nothing better to do, then I'll go to church. Then I'll Sabbath. If I have nothing, like all my leftovers, right? I'll, I'll plan this, I'll plan that, I'll plan that. And then if I have leftover time, then I'll go to church, then I'll Sabbath, then I'll do this thing. And this is what Cain did. Cain literally had all of this harvest and he was like, I'm going to eat first. I'm going to make sure my family has first. Everything's... And then he's like, I'll, I'll give you God the leftovers. And God was like, ah, oh, that like, ah, I don't like the leftovers, because I gave you all of this stuff. I just wanted, the, I wanted to be the priority. But Abel, Abel, what does he do? He gives his firstborn. What does that mean? That means that he has no other sheep. He doesn't have any other uh, little lambs, right? He only has one firstborn, but he's like this. He's like, I'm going to prioritize you, God. I'm going to make sure that you get the offering first. Even if there are no other firstborn, even though if there's no other born right to me, I'm going to make sure you get your offering first because I'm going to prioritize you. And I don't know if I'm going to get 10 sheep this year or 15 sheep or 20 sheep. I don't know, but I'm going to make sure you're the priority. You get the first of it. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say? He says, seek first the kingdom. Make it a priority first and then revolve your whole life around the kingdom. But we, what do we do? We, we, we get the leftovers. We're like, okay, as, if I have time, then I'll do it. 
Look, even in your daily walk with God, right? Even in your quiet times or whatever you want to call it, right? I mean, so many of us, we give God our leftovers. You should prioritize your daily walk with God every single day and then revolve your whole schedule around that. So for me, for example, like I, I just I have to get up at 5 a.m. I do because my kids, they go crazy. So I got to get up at 5 a.m. to do my quiet times, which means I have to go to sleep at 10, the latest. And so but I, I set that first and then my whole day revolves around this, making this happen. But, and this is abundantly clear in scripture, abundantly clear that we should prioritize God first. And yet I get all these questions all the time. They're like, hey, Eric, you know, I read this passage in the Bible that says we should leave everything and follow Jesus. What does that mean? Do I have to leave everything? And I say, I don't know, but I know this. You should prioritize Jesus and then revolve everything else around that priority. And even though it's abundant in scripture, we still neglect it. We ask all these questions like, oh, should I, you know, do I have to prioritize Sundays? Can I worship on another day? And so we end up worshiping on another day, but then we end up not worshiping on another day because we tell ourselves we're going to worship online, but then we never worship online. And so then we, we end up only coming to service like once a month. And then we look back at the month and we're like, oh man, I only Sabbath once a month. And again, I'm not saying this to belittle you or to guilt you or to say any of these things, but it's just the reality of what happens. We, we jumble all of these things up in our heads and we end up not actually obeying Christ and his words. And look, here's the audacity that I have and here's the audacity that all of us have is we don't prioritize Jesus and yet we expect to grow as disciples. Right? We say this, like we expect to find peace that surpasses all understanding when we've only prayed that one time in that month. We expect to find the strength to forgive when we never spend time with the one who's forgiven us. We expect to find grace to treat our coworkers with grace, and yet we never spend time with the source of all grace. We expect to find joy in the midst of sorrow when we don't spend time with joy himself. Let me ask you, do you have faith in the authority of Jesus? Do you believe Jesus has all authority? Then do what he says. Do what he says. Look, let me take this a little bit deeper, okay? I think for a lot of us, it's not only that we don't know, like we don't want to listen to what Jesus, but I think for a lot of us too, we don't even read his word. We don't even know what this thing says sometimes. We may have been Christians our whole life, but we never read the Bible. We've never taken time to actually read through it. Can I commend you to read your Bibles? Look, let me put it like this. Look, I I know you feel this way because I feel this way. I I don't like entitled people. Okay, my kids are entitled, okay? And, and during the vacation, I was like getting so upset at them because we went to Disneyland. We were like doing all this stuff that was super fun. They got to meet Mickey Mouse and Goofy and Donald Duck. And, you know, even my son got to fist bump Donald, Dump and, uh, Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse. And, and he got to, you know, see Lightning McQueen, who's his favorite. He got to do all this stuff. And yet in our vacation, they all find some way to complain, it's so hard, right? I want this, I want that. And they're crying. And I would look at them and be like, you so entitled. You, you know what my vacation was when I was growing up? My mom and dad used to tell me, just play on the street. That's your vacation. Just play there. And do you realize that spiritually speaking, we are all entitled? Do you understand what Jesus had to do in order for us to have our Bibles? Do you know how many great civilizations like the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, and the Romans tried to burn, literally burn away all of our scriptures, and yet Jesus protected these so that we can read them? In fact, did you realize this, okay? Like 500 years ago, 
just five, within the last 500 years, we've become an, a, a very literate society. Most of human history, everyone has been illiterate. They have not been able to read and write, most of the human population. And yet, do you know why most people are literate today? It's because Christians, after the Reformation, do you know what they said? Right, Martin Luther came about, he was like, sola scriptura, sola scriptura, only scripture. You guys got to read, you got to read your Bibles. And so all these Christians were like, well, I don't know how to read. And they were like, well, that's a good point. We got to teach you how to read. And so all of these Christians started building schools. They started building classrooms. And this is why today we have education the way we do. It's because of Christians. Christians said, we've got to teach people how to read so that they can read their Bibles. This is why in the last 500 years, we've made so much technological advancement because Christians decided to teach other Christians to read so that they could just simply read their Bibles. And yet we saw uh, advancement in mathematics and in logic and in reason and, and in all sorts of areas because we learned how to read. Do you understand what Jesus Christ has done so that you and I have the ability to read and write? We have now personal Bibles. We have printing presses. We have all these things so that now, and now we have it on our phones and our apps so that we can read it at any moment, at any time. And yet still, it builds up dust. It gets deleted off of our phone apps because we haven't opened it in so long. Friends, I want to commend you to read your Bibles because I'll tell you this, look, it won't happen overnight, but I'm telling you this, if you read your Bibles, it will change you. You cannot walk away from reading the Bible and not be changed. The things that Jesus says in the Bible are so striking. You know, I was talking to one of my pastor friends and he said he did this little Bible study at his church and he said, without fail, he said, without fail, every single session, they would just give him the book of Genesis. They just went through Genesis 1 to 3. I said, without fail, every single time, all they would do is they would break out into groups. Uh, he would just have people read their Bibles on their own for like 15 minutes. They would make notes on it. They would come back together and they would share it. And he said, that's all they would do. And yet, whenever they would come back together and share, he said, without fail, every single time, somebody would be in tears weeping over just the scriptures, over what they just read. So feeling like, man, I didn't know this was in our Bibles. I didn't know this was the kind of grace that God had for me. I didn't know this, and I didn't know that. And they were, they were starting to realize on their own, through the power of the Holy Spirit, what the scriptures were saying. Look, it is so simple. Let me teach you very quickly, okay? If you've never picked up your Bibles and read it, it's very simple. Start with a prayer. Ask the Holy Spirit. Say, Holy Spirit, come. Would you help me to read this the way you want me to read it? Help me to understand your scriptures and then simply start reading it. Read one verse a day. Read seven verses. I don't care. Read a chapter. Read two chapters. Read seven. I don't care. Start somewhere, though, and just read. Because Jesus has given us his words, and in order for us to obey him, we have to know his words. Look, there. I said there are two reasons for Jesus' authority being so pronounced along with discipleship, but here's a second reason. The one with all authority can take care of us as we follow him. The one with all authority can take care of us as we follow him. Because here's what's going to happen. As you take the words of Jesus with authority, and as you obey his words, yes, there will be joy, unspeakable joy, but there will also be hardships and costs that come. And you will have to trust in his authority. Look, one of the things that I thought was really striking, and I'm still wrestling with this, and I don't know what this means, but if you look with me at verse 16 and 17, it says something kind of striking here. It says this, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick, okay? So the third miracle, he heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then he starts healing all these other people, okay? And then in verse 17, it says this, this was to fulfill. 
This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. You see what the gospel, he's saying that Jesus didn't just heal people. He took on their diseases and their illnesses. And I, and I was like, this is strange. I, I never thought about this. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Green Mile, but um, there's, this, uh, there's Tom Hanks and then there's another character in the story who can literally swallow and eat people's illnesses and diseases. Like it turns all green, right? He's like, he grabs them. It's like really scary. He grabs them. He's like, and he like eats their illness. And then he becomes really sick afterwards. He starts throwing up. He starts sweating. And then after a day or two, he kind of gets over it. But he has to literally eat their illness. And I was thinking about this. I don't know if it happened in the same way, but I wonder, I wonder at times if Jesus, when he healed people, it cost his body something. That as he was healing people, it wasn't just he cast them away, but he literally had to absorb their illness. I mean, think about it like this, right? Do you guys remember the story when he casts out these demons, the legion of demons in this guy's body, but he has to cast them away somewhere. He cast them into these pigs. These demons had to go somewhere. And I wonder, I wonder where he had to put these demons whenever he cast out the demons. I wonder where he had to put the sickness whenever he cast out the sickness. In fact, in Matthew chapter 9, he heals this woman who has blood discharge for so many years. And it says that he felt the power leaving his body. And I wonder when Jesus healed people, did he have to take on and did he feel, did he, did he feel the weight of those illnesses? And I say this all because, because it costs, I think it costs something when Jesus healed us. And yet that shows how much Jesus loved us. That it wasn't just his, our sins that he bore upon his body on the cross, but it was also our sickness, our disease, our illnesses that he bore upon himself. And he took it all for us because he loves us. And this one with all authority in on heaven and on earth also loves you. That he would take upon our illnesses and our diseases. He would bear them for us because he loves us. He will take care of you. He will take care of you when you're being generous, when you have a hard time forgiving, when you're being the weaker person. He will take care of you. Do not worry, he says. This leads us to our second point, the leper, the centurion, and the mother. So let's turn our attention now to the actual people here. Because I think the actual people will teach us what as disciples we should be doing. How can we grow in this discipleship now? Look, Jesus here heals three people, and what connects all three people is really simple. They are outcasts and outsiders. And in fact, that word outcasts and outsiders, I don't think does justice to what they really were. Like the only thing I can think of is imagine if you're sitting at a nice fine dining place where you spent hundreds of dollars on a meal and nice wine and fancy stuff, and you get into a suit and your date gets into a nice dress, right? And all of a sudden, this homeless person walks in who's smelly, who has ripped clothes, right? Uh, maybe didn't wash themselves for many, many days, many, many weeks, and they come in and they sit right next to you and you have a meal with them. When Jesus heals these people, it's, it's sort of like that. That's how outsiderish these people were. Because it wasn't just that they were outsiderish, but all of these people could be cast as unclean. Right? The leper was unclean. They were literally cast out of society. Centurion was a Gentile, therefore they were outside of salvation, therefore being unclean people. The woman, right, by secular standards, was actually considered unclean. Why? Because they were lesser than men. And yet all three of these people come to Jesus and he heals all three of them. And again, the centerpiece story is the centurion one. And look at what it says. Look at what Jesus says. He goes on this, he goes and gives this little mini sermon after the centurion's servant uh, marvels him. Look at verse 10, okay? When Jesus heard this, the, the, centurion, uh, the centurion's faith, 
right? He marveled and he said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And listen to this, I tell you, Many come from east and west. What are these? These are outsiders, east and west, and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom, the people inside the kingdom, will be thrown out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you hear what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that the kingdom of God actually belongs to the outsiders, In other words, let me put it like this. This church, New Life Fellowship, doesn't belong to the people who have been here the longest. This church, New Life Fellowship, doesn't belong to the people who tithe the most. It doesn't belong to the people who have been here the longest or to the elders or to the staff or to myself. Jesus is saying this. New Life Fellowship belongs to people who are not even here right now. It belongs to the people who are gardening their their gardens right now. It's to the person who's, who's out there, not even at church. It's to all of those who don't even know Jesus. That's who the church belongs to because they will be streaming in from east and west and north and south to dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The church doesn't belong to us here in this building. It belongs to everyone outside this building. I watched this um, movie on the way to LA. Um, I, I recently came back from vacation to LA and I was on the flight from Seattle to LA and I watched a movie called Jesus Revolution. And it follows primarily a guy by the name of Greg Laurie who started all the Harvest Crusades and started these big kinds of um, revivals. But uh, it kind of tells of his kind of like coming of rise or whatever to, to, to how he became a pastor and all that stuff. But he was really mentored by this guy named Chuck Smith. And Chuck Smith started all these Calvary chapels. You may have seen them around. Uh, and Calvary Chapel started off with 25 people, but they grew, their main campus grew to, at its peak, about 35,000 people. And then they were able to pa- plant thousands of churches all over the United States and all over the world. A thousand churches. And Chuck Smith started out with this small congregation. In the movie, it's sort of like, you know, dramatized and whatnot, but it's, um, but Chuck Smith is played by Kelsey Grammer, who uh, is Fraser Crane. You guys know Kelsey Grammer, but... Um, he plays him, and at the beginning of the movie, Chuck Smith has a small congregation of 25 people. They're all buttoned up in their suit and ties, and they're all like these legalistic kind of Christians who love their hymns and just want to sing, you know, like psalms and things like that. And, and, and all of a sudden, he meets this hippie Christian. This hippie Christian comes into his life, and he basically says, look, there are all these lost people out there that you're not ministering to. Why don't you consider all the hippies? Because this was taking place in the 60s when there were all these young hippies running around, shoeless, stinky addicted to all these different drugs and basically chuck smith was like no like why would i do that like they're going to ruin the church they're going to ruin all these things but slowly one by one he begins turning his attention to the hippies and soon enough his church starts to fill up with like these shoeless people you know you got to mind you all of these people were like in their suit and ties and their nice dresses their sunday best and then all of a sudden you see these hippies shoeless in the church sitting on the floor you know singing kumbaya and like you know they're all stinky and some of them have been just released from prison some of them were addicted to drugs and they found jesus right and they're all filling up his church now and there's a moment in the, in the movie, it's a dramatized scene, but the church people, the, the insiders, right, the, the ones who are legalistic with their suits on, they come to him and they're like, we don't like the way you're doing church. We don't like the way all of this is going down. Why are you, like, uh, appealing to the hippies and to these young people? Like, what about us? And, and Kelsey Grammer's character, Chuck Smith, looks at them and he says, look, I, I want to minister to everybody. I want to minister to you, to the hippies, to everyone. And he's like, but if you don't like that, then I, I don't know what to do. And so those guys storm out in the middle of a service. They storm out and all of them leave. 
But yet, after they leave, the church starts to grow and grow and grow, and it's filled with all of these people who probably shouldn't know Jesus, but end up coming to know his love. And so they end up baptizing people at beaches, and they start opening up the church. They start doing rock and roll music, and the church is filled. You see, the Gospel of Matthew was actually written to a Jewish audience. It's one of the most Jewish of all the Gospels. And, and what, what Matthew is trying to do is he's trying to tell his Jewish audience, look, do you understand that salvation doesn't belong to you alone? It's going to belong to all these people who are not yet even here. They're going to come in from the east and from the west, and they're going to stream in. The, the church belongs to the outsiders. And this, look, friends, if you want to grow in your discipleship, if you want to follow after Jesus, you have to get this into your head. We have to be concerned about people who are not yet here. In fact, I think this is one of the pieces of discipleship that we miss. A lot of times when we think about discipleship, it's read your Bible and pray, which I believe in. I just told you, read your Bible and pray. But another piece of it is we have to now go out and look and seek and save those who are lost. And I'm telling you, if you turn your attention towards the outsider, you will grow in your discipleship. You will actually grow. You will begin getting really uncomfortable because you have to have uncomfortable conversations with people. You have to talk about Jesus to people that you would never talk about Jesus to. You have to pray for people even when they don't ask you to pray for them. You're going to have to do all sorts of things that are uncomfortable and you're going to grow in your discipleship. Look, even at the end of Matthew chapter 9, at the very end, look at what Jesus says. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is, but there are so many people who don't know me. And, and, but the laborers are so few of them. Why? I don't know. He says, pray. He says, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. If you're going to follow Jesus, friends, do you know what Jesus, Jesus, this is what the disciples do. Wherever Jesus walked, okay, the disciples would literally walk in his footsteps. They would do everything Jesus did. And in Luke chapter 19, do you know what Jesus says he came to do? Luke chapter 19, after, he, after Zacchaeus is saved and he finds salvation, Jesus proclaims, today salvation has come to this house. And then he says this, I came, Jesus says, I came, what, what? To minister to the insiders, to minister to the people, no, he says, I came to seek and save the lost. That's why I came. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple, then that's the reason why you're here too. You came to seek and save the lost because that's what our Lord and Savior did. And what this means is we have to create spaces for people who are not yet here. We have to become uncomfortable so that people outside of our church can feel comfortable here. We have to give up our pride and our ego. We have to die to ourselves so that others might have life. We need to create spaces in our church to welcome those who are not yet a part of our community. And here's the great news, church, and here's what I'm so encouraged by. You all have already been doing this. And I want, I want to commend you to doing more and more of it. I see so many of you going up to people that you don't even know and just starting conversations and saying, hey, are you new here? And you just start conversations and that's awesome. You're making space for people who are not yet here. I mean, when? When just testified to this. He was like, I, like I, I, I came to this city and I was lonely and all this stuff and I just wanted to make space for people who are not yet a part of this community. Erica Jung, who's now serving on Bridge, even Aaron Lee, who, who spoke at our previous service, is a Bridge group leader as well. I see so many of you. Mar, she just joined welcoming team. She was just out there. Mar, like she, she goes and talks to these people who she doesn't even know, and she brings them to me. She's like, hey, this person's new to our church. Why don't you connect with Pastor Eric and yada, yada. I mean, you guys are already doing this. Create more and more space for people who are not yet here. And so we as a church, we have to die to ourselves 
so that there are more and more people that can find a place here. This leads me to our third and final point, the healer, the healer. Look at the stories again, okay? We're going to look at the healings now. The stories of healing themselves are so incredible to me because here's the thing, right? If you ever seen like, I don't know if how many of you have watched like TBN or like these televangelists, like a, a Benny Hinn or some of these like miraculous workers, when they do healings, they do it very efficiently. They like do Hadoukens, they're like, Hadouken, and they're like, everyone, everyone falls over, right? They're like, they're like in Jesus' name, bah, and they blast people and they fall over, right? And, and if I were Jesus, I think I would heal people that way. I would do it efficiently. I'd be like, all of you have leprosy? Okay, stand in the line, boom, leprosy gone. You all have uh, paralysis? Boom, all paralysis gone. I would just line you guys up in order and I'll heal you like that, right? But if you look at Jesus, he heals everyone individually. And he heals them in very, very unique ways. And he's so personable. He comes up to people and he, and he actually engages them the way they want to be engaged. And in fact, more than the healing themselves, he engages their brokenness. Let's take the leper, for example. Okay, Look at the leper. The leper, uh, leprosy in that time was the most incurable disease of everything. In fact, it was linked to death itself. In fact, the Jewish people would say this, that the only, the only person that could cure leprosy was God himself. There was no doctor on earth. There was no witch doctor on earth that could cure leprosy. Nothing could cure leprosy except for God himself. And so whenever, if you got leprosy, man, it was game over. It's like those zombie movies, you know what I'm saying? When you get bit by the zombie, it's like, oh no, it's game over, I'm dead. And so you just shoot the person, right, because they're, they're a goner. That's what leprosy was. As soon as you got leprosy, you're like, oh man, it's game over, I'm done. I'm done. There's nothing for me. And so this leper, right, this leper was an outcast. No one wanted to be near him because they were like, if that's contagious and I get it, man, I'm screwed too. I'm going to become unclean. I'm going to be cast out of society. I I'm done. And so this leper had to stay as far away as humanly possible from all civilization. And this leper never felt touch. Think about it. I don't know how many years this leper went on and on, but never felt touch. You know, I remember um, this pastor giving a sermon once, and he talked about this king. I think it's King Frederick. But he's a, he lived a few hundred years ago, but he was kind of sick and twisted in his mind, but he wanted to see what the natural language of human beings would be. And so he decided to not speak. He, he got all these infants together, and he told these nurses, don't speak to the infants at all. Like, just don't speak to because I want to see what kind of language they develop. But at the same time, he told them, don't touch them either. Don't carry them. Don't nurse them. Don't do any of that. Just like, just let them be. And what they found is that if you don't touch babies, they die. They literally die because, of, because they're not touched. In fact, when I went back to L.A., I met up with one of my friends, and his wife, who's an NP, a nurse practitioner, was telling me that she works with, like, these infants who have been abused. And actually, these abused infants have not, have not been carried very much. They have not been cradled and cuddled very much. And so she says any time she picks up these abused infants to feed them or to change them or to do whatever, she says without fail, they all like get super rigid and they get super like, like stiff because they've never been touched and they, and, and they develop in all sorts of strange ways because they haven't been touched in the way they should. And I want you to imagine this leopard living this way for so long. And Jesus instead, right, because if I were Jesus and that leper was there, I'd be like, okay, stay there. Don't, don't come close to me. Just, I'm going to heal you, but just stay there. Don't touch me. But Jesus goes up to him and he touches him because this is what the man needed. Even with the Roman centurion, where the Roman centurion needed to see Jesus' authority, and so he speaks. 
Right? He doesn't go over and touch the servant because that's not what he needed. He needed, the Roman centurion needed him to speak life into his servant and to see the authority of Jesus. And even with Simon Peter's mother-in-law, he needed to go into her house. Right? He didn't go into the Roman centurion's house, but he goes into Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house and he touches her, a woman. You're not supposed to touch a woman. A Jewish rabbi is not supposed to touch a woman during that time. And yet he touches her as well because this is what she needed. And with each healing, with each healing, subsequently comes discipleship and following Jesus. Do you realize that this centurion ends up following Jesus? In Matthew 27, it gives us a glimpse of this. In Matthew 27, when Jesus is dying on the cross, the centurion, it says this in verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And I believe it was the same centurion here in Matthew 8. Wait, think about the leper. I know it says that it, Jesus came down with great crowds off of the mountains, but scholars say that there is a break in time between verse 1 and 2 because there is no way, there is no way that any other, these crowds would want to be around a leper. In fact, at the end of the story, if you see there in verse 4, it says, Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Why would he say that? Because there was no one around. There was no one around when Jesus was actually healing this leper. But do you see, how do we have this story of the leper? It's because the leper actually disobeyed Jesus and he started telling everyone about this story, about how he was healed, because he too became a follower of Jesus. And even Simon Peter's mother-in-law, what does she do right after she's healed? She gets up and she starts to serve Jesus. See, if you're in this place and you're broken, maybe you're depressed or maybe you're anxious or maybe you're lonely, or maybe there are words that were said to you that scarred you. Maybe you're broken from the church itself. Jesus wants to heal you. Jesus wants to restore you. And in your restoration, he then wants to use your brokenness to minister to other people. Because this is what following Jesus means. It doesn't mean that Jesus wants you to get rid of all your brokenness and then start you on a clean slate. Rather, Jesus wants to use all of your brokenness. He wants to use your very brokenness to heal other people. And so if you're saying, right, oh, Eric, like, I don't know how to reach out to other people who don't know Jesus. I don't know how to evangelize. I don't know how to serve. I don't know how to minister. I don't know how to be a disciple in that way. Don't worry about it. Jesus is going to use your brokenness to minister to other people. You know, my, one of my close friends in L.A., I met up with him, and he was telling me that his pastor at his church asked him recently to serve um, as a community group leader for fathers and husbands. And his first, his first reaction to uh, his pastor was this. He said, no way. He said, you don't understand. Like, I, I, like, I'm not a good father. I'm not a good husband. And the pastor looked at him and he said, no, no, no. That's exactly why we need you. He's saying all the other husbands and fathers are struggling. And they don't want to talk to a father and a husband who has everything perfectly set. They want to talk to somebody who's struggling as well. And what they're doing in their struggles and in their brokenness. You know, recently I was talking to a college student this was a few months ago, actually, but I was talking to a college student about his doubts and about all the things that he was worried about. And um, at the end of that conversation, he was really great. He was really nice. I was never offended by anything he said. But at the end, he said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, he said Eric, I wish I didn't talk to you. <laughs> he said, I wish I didn't talk to you because you're so sure of your faith. He said, I want to talk to people who doubt like me. 
And in that moment, I felt so bad for him. I was like, man, I wish I had more doubts. I wish I had more. I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure of my faith, but of course I still doubt, and of course there's still things that I doubt inside, but yeah, of course, for the most part, I feel pretty sold out about this stuff, which is why I'm up here and I'm preaching, you know. Um, but, but at the same time, like, I wish, I wish that I could have been that for him. But so many of you here have that brokenness. You have that doubt, and you can minister to other people with it. This is why we need every single one of you Look, even in your brokenness, God will heal other people. And he wants to use all of your brokenness. He wants to heal you and he wants to use you. I mean, look no further. Look, Pastor Clara, I don't, you know, she's talked about this so many times, but when she moved to San Francisco, she was all alone and she, she didn't have uh, uh, all these networks and all these friends and her heart broke now for people who moved to the city who are all alone as well. When too, when knows, he was broken. He said it himself, he was lonely. And, and now his ministry flows out of his brokenness. And you too, Jesus wants to heal you, but then he wants to use the very brokenness inside of you to minister to other people. And we've got to begin turning our attention to those who are not yet here at this church, friends. Look, friends, on the cross, Jesus Christ became broken for us. He took upon himself the diseases. He took upon himself the illnesses. He took upon our sin, our shame, and our brokenness so that he could heal us. And friends, I hope that at this church and, and amongst the community, amongst the friendships, and with your relationship with Jesus Christ, I hope and pray that there is healing, abundant healing for you. And even as we close the service, I'm going to pray for healing over you. I want you to be healed inside. I want you to be healed in every aspect of your being. And I want you to experience the very love of Christ because he does love you. He gave himself up on a cross for you and he desires to be with you, friends. And our hope is that as you're healed, you would turn your attention to those who are broken, those who are outside, those who are downtrodden, and you would turn your attention to them and begin ministering to them in your own brokenness. Amen. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, I want to lift up every single person in this room who is broken. Lord, if there are people in here who are suffering from depression or from anxiety, Lord, we ask that you would heal them in Jesus' name. Lord, we pray for those who are lonely, God, and who feel like the outsider and outcast. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you would provide them community and relationships, God, that would give them life and life abundant. God, we pray for those in this place who have been hurt by others, who have been scarred by others, maybe physically or verbally or uh, just mentally, Lord, they've been scarred. Maybe it was by a mother or by a father. Maybe it was by a friend or by a spouse. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you would heal them. Lord, we pray for relationships that are broken. Maybe there are marriages in this place that are fractured and broken. We pray in Jesus' name that you would heal those relationships. Lord, we pray for physical healing as well. Lord, maybe there are people in here who have sickness or illness. We pray in Jesus' name that you would heal their bodies. Lord, maybe there are people who are experiencing infertility and cannot have children, although they desire them. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you would heal their bodies. Lord, we pray for loved ones and, and, and others, God, in our lives who have cancer or are experiencing these kinds of illnesses. We pray in Jesus' name that you would heal them. Lord, we desire to experience your healing in every facet of our lives, socially, physically, mentally, spiritually, Lord. We pray that you would heal us in every facet of our being. But Lord, at the same time, would you use the very brokenness that you heal, Lord, so that we can minister to others. May we turn our attention, Lord, to the lost. 
May we turn our attention to those who are not yet a part of this community, Lord. And may we have compassion on them as you had compassion on us. May we love them as you loved us, Lord. May you utilize, God, our very brokenness, God, to be the kinds of people that you want us to be. And would you grow us in our discipleship, God, because, not despite, but because of the very brokenness inside of us, Lord. God, we thank you, God, for all that you're doing in us and in the church, Lord. We pray that you continue your healing work, Lord. We pray that you would continue, uh, 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 we, we pray that we continue, continuously seek after you and that we'd love you all the days of our lives. Lord, we give this time up to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.